νέα αστυνομική επιχείρηση για την εκένωση άλλων δύο κτηρίων που τελούσαν υποκατάληψη ανατάληψη, ανατάληψη. Hi, y'all. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Anthropological Airways, the official podcast of the journal American Anthropologist. This is season five, episode two, What was Moria and What Comes Next? My name is Anar Parikh. I'm the associate editor of the podcast at American Anthropologist and the executive producer of this show. I'm joined by Dr. Naur Ben Yehoyada, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Columbia University, and Dr. Yanis Hamalakis, Bukowski Family Professor of Archaeology and Professor of Modern Greek Studies at Brown University. Today's episode is about Moria, once the largest refugee camp in Europe until it was completely destroyed by a fire in September 2020. Dr. Hamalakis had been researching, experiencing, and witnessing the materiality of contemporary migration on Lesbos, the Greek island where Moria was located since 2016. And in the aftermath of its destruction, he convened a cohort of archeologists, social anthropologists, activists, teachers, and authors with direct connections to and experiences of Moria to reflect on what the place meant to them and possible directions for the future. These contributions came together in the form of a multimodal portfolio, What Was Moria and What Comes Next, comprising research and photo essays, ethnographic fiction, first-person accounts, lyrical prose, illustration, and more. Dr. Hamalakis's introduction to the collection was published in the February 2022 issue of American Anthropologist, and the entirety of the collection is available open access on the journal's website. To round out the multimodal scope of this project, this episode contributes an oral and aural dimension to the reflections to what was Moria and what comes next. So with that, I will hand it over to Drs. Hamalakis and Ben Yehoyada. Can you both start by introducing yourselves? Thank you very much, Anar, and hi, Naor, and hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Yanis Hamilakis. Um, as Anar said, I teach archaeology and modern Greek studies at Brown University. I'm an archaeologist of the Mediterranean. I've been working in Greece, um, researching and writing about Greek prehistory, the prehistoric um, times like Neolithic, Neolithic and the Bronze Age. But I've also been doing a lot of work on the role of the past and the present, the nationalist dimensions of archaeology, and more recently, yes, increasingly on what we call contemporary archaeology or the archaeology of the contemporary past, which is applying archaeological methods on the present moment, in the present world, on the materiality that surrounds us today. Um, I have been working in Moria for many years now, since 2016. As an archaeologist of the present, as a contemporary archaeologist, but also as somebody who has done in, on other sites, another more conventional archaeological sites, what we call archaeological ethnography, which is a combination of um, social anthropological and archaeological methods to produce a new space of research, a new space of doing fieldwork, a new space of writing. Um, I just want to also say something in relation to the connection of some of, uh, of the work of Moria to my previous work, and that's to do with my work on nationalism. As we know, nationalism is very often about the border, about the border not only as a physical entity, but also as a process, as an apparatus, 
and as a way of, of creating realities. So Moria, as we will discuss today, is situated at the border, physically at the border between Greece and Turkey, which is also a border between the global south and the global north. So you could see, I hope, work connections between my previous work on nationalism, nationalization, and the work on the contemporary moment and on migration, the border, and Moria. My name is Naor Benio Yada. Uh, thank you, Anar, and thank you, Anis, for, for inviting me to participate in this uh, in this podcast episode. I'm an assistant professor of anthropology. I work mainly in the central and the eastern Mediterranean, in the central Mediterranean. I work on, uh, on fisheries and maritime uh, relationships. I, I work a bit um, on, on the maritime and the underwater aspects of the materiality of, of forced and irregular migration, which is how I got to know and, 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 and really appreciate Yanis's work over, over the years. Uh, there are a couple of differences maybe that, that can set the conversation. One of them is that I work in, in, at sea uh, and, and not on land, and the other one is that I work in that part of Southern Europe in the Mediterranean that has a, a longer stretch of water that kind of invites uh, more attention just because it takes longer to cross. Uh, I'm not saying it's more dangerous to cross, but it takes longer to cross. And therefore, the vessels, the social relations that set up those vessels can look look a bit differently. And I hope these kinds of differences will, uh, will enable us to, 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 to think together about, uh, about your research and your work over, over the years in Moria with, with the people of Moria. So uh, to start, Dr. Hamilakis, uh, can you tell us what was Moria and why it was and continues to be important? Yes, uh, Moria, uh, first of all, is the name of a village, the name of a village on the island of Lesbos, which is a border island between Greece and Turkey. Um, there is a locality uh, very close to the village of Moria, which has been um, the focus of attention and work on migration because it was used as a locality to create, construct, and operate perhaps the largest refugee camp in Europe, what was known and still known as the Camp of Moria or the Center of Moria, the processing center uh, of Moria. Now, the name of Moria, if you, if you Google Moria at the moment, you'll find thousands and thousands and thousands of news items and links that is to do with you know, the phenomenon of migration in the Mediterranean. And more recently, uh, Moria has become, I guess, a metaphor for what's wrong about migration and a regime of migration in Europe, especially the policies of the European Union and of the Greek government, but primarily the European Union in relation to, to migration. For example, after the fire that destroyed Moria in September, 2020, European officials came out and said, no more Morias in the plural, no more Morians, sending the message that from now on they are going to adopt a new policy, a new policy about so-called processing migrants, a new policy about camps that would be very different from what Moria embodied and signified. 
Um, so this is some thought that I hope give uh, our our audience the um, the sense of what Moria has been in terms of its physical physical configuration. Moria was uh, uh, first of all a walled compound, a compound that was built first as a conscript training center for the Greek army, um, a fairly small facility that housed, I guess, a thousand or a couple of thousand people. But since 2003, that center, that the conscript center had closed down and the facility had been used for, as I said, processing, that's the language that the European Union and others use, processing migrants or people on the move, which is my preferred term for them, who cross into Lesbos from Turkey and thus enter the European Union. Now, that facility, if you were to visit until its fire, presented the usual uh, materiality of an enclosed and militarized and securitized space. So high cement walls, barbed wire and razor wire, and lots of facilities inside that connect to, to encampments and to, and to centers to house people in large numbers. So um, containers that look like um, maritime containers, but they are shipping containers, but they are what migrants call isoboxes. That's the code name that people use because they have the international standardization organization logo on them. So big, wide, very often wide kind of boxes, box-like accommodation, but also other structures that were constructed with European Union funding to facilitate the operations of Moria. Now, as I say in the article published in the American Anthropologist, it's perhaps a, an incorrect way to describe this as a refugee or a migrant camp, because it was much more than a camp. Encampment accommodation was one of its functions, but it had multiple other functions that were to do with um, the need of the authorities, primarily European Union authorities, but also other authorities, Greek authorities, for example, to register people, to capture information, to store information, and to decide on what to do with the border crossers who arrive on the island. So the capturing information was fundamental, the storing information, the processing of people, the decisions about the asylum status or not. You know, for many years, the main facility and operation of the asylum service, both the European Union Asylum Service and the Greek one, was housed inside the compound of Moria. There was also another weird building, perhaps one of the most frightful buildings in, in the whole operation, called, uh, I'm translating here, pre-departure pre-departure center for the detention of aliens. So it was a euphemistically called uh, building because in fact, it was a high security prison. It was a prison for people who were either processing, um, their application for asylum was denied or, or imprisoned until they were deported. Now, in addition to those people, I realized to my huge surprise and to my astonishment that there were also other people who had arrived on the island and they were imprisoned upon arrival because their chances of getting asylum status were very low. In addition, they were judged by authorities, especially the Greek police, as people prone to criminality in inverted commas. 
So that building was a kind of facility that in many ways operated on the kind of the verge of legality and illegality. It was not that, that kind of decision of the Greek police and of the border authorities to imprison people upon arrival had no legal grounding. So these are some of the functions of the center. So it is, as I said, we talk about it as a camp, as a kind of a, as a, a refugee um, refugee camp, but it was much more than that. So that was the center, the kind of the wall compound. In recent years, because there were so many people who could not be housed inside the wall compound, the settlement expanded on the surrounding hills. And at one point in the last year of the life of this site, in 2020, the number of people in the world compound and the surrounding hills actually exceeded the 20,000, 20,000 people. Now, that's, a, that's, that's an astonishing number, especially if we compare the fact that, um, with the fact, compared with the fact that the capacity of this center, according to official figures, was about 2,000 or 2,000 and a half or 3,000 maximum. So you can get the sense of the scale. And of course, you have to bear in mind that this was a, a kind of transit center in the sense that people would, would spend time and then move on to the mainland and on to other countries. Um, so you can get the sense of, of kind of the scale of the number of people who actually, uh, at one moment in their life, lived there on the Camp of Moria. At the end of the, your, your piece in the American Anthropologist, one of the characterizations you give to the place is it was an institu institution of schooling in the bodily pedagogy of submission, yet protests and demonstrations were frequent. So with, with, that, with that kind of description and the virus description you, you just gave and with the idea that none of these descriptions uh, suffices, maybe, maybe you can tell us what is it that, that, that made Moria different from other refugee or, or immigrant camps around the world, not just in the Eurobound uh, routes? Yes, I mean, uh, first of all, most of us, uh, when we hear refugee camps or migrant camps in the present, the present moment in the world, we have in mind uh, regions like the Middle East, East Africa, or generally countries that we classify, as we said, countries in the global south. It has been um, unusual for us to imagine refugee camps or facilities connected to refugees, to be more precise, in the global north and especially in the European soil and European countries. So that's one, one key difference to keep in mind. And of course, the second difference is that we're talking about a facility that is part of what I call the assemblage of the border. So we have to imagine that facility and connect it to all other entities that are to do with the border as an institution beyond its physical manifestation and reality. So I have in mind, for example, the, the Frontex ships that patrol the passage between uh, Turkey and Greece, between uh, Lesbos and the Anatolia and the Turkish coast. I have in mind all the facilities on the island as a whole, including the very large number of humanitarian NGO organizations that set camp on the island of Lesbos, since Lesbos became such a focal point for migration, especially since 2015, since the what we call the Syrian exodus moment. So Moria was one node, one, one very, very important entity within that border assemblage. So it was the second difference. I guess the third difference is that, as I said, it was a very complex organization 
And very often you would hear uh, Moria being called a hotspot. That's an interesting term in many ways. And it relates to what the European um, Union called in 2015, a hotspot approach to migration. By that they meant is that they wanted to do some sort of streamlining of what they saw as the migration problem, the migration crisis. They wanted to create facilities that would actually combine many different functions and become, according to their own kind of terms and terminology, an efficient way of deciding and moving forward or sending back or processing people. So it was a, a part of that broader policy that the European Union called hotspot. I guess another major difference compared to more conventional camps is to do with capturing of information, um, of surveillance, of biometrics, um, of an attempt to map people and store information into multiple uh, databases, some of them local, many of them, and most of them Europeans. I guess these are some of the features that make this place so different from other refugee camps. Having in mind the, you know, the, the project in its entirety that your, your piece was, was the introduction to, I wonder if one of the, you know, how do these differences, do these things that make Moria different from other places around the world also contributed or interacted with the way Moria became a cause celebre, you know, the, 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 the way that it picked up, that it, it became famous. What, what is the discursive uniqueness of Moria as it grew? I think, you know, I mean, your question now reminds me of another, another role and another kind of function, another position in Moria in the global uh, mediascape, and that's its role as a stage. This is something I write in the piece as well. I talked a lot about surveillance and capture information, but perhaps the other important role of this, this entity is its role as, as a spectacle, as a stage where many different performances were performed and as something that became prominent in the global media. The prominence was linked to many different factors. It was linked to, as I said, again, the Syria moment when the islands and you know the, the crossing between Turkey and Greece actually became a focal point for the whole world and the media of the whole world because the numbers then were phenomenal for a small island like Lesbos. People talk about half a million people crossing in that year, 2015 and 16. So many media, uh, many media outlets you know, either moved to Lesbos or came to Lesbos to recall that moment. But it also has to do with prominent visits. Moria attracted a number of luminaries, a number of personalities from the Pope to Hollywood celebrities, to prime ministers, to princesses. Everybody wanted to appear on the stage of Moria. And that's, that's a facet that actually deserves its own exploration, its own, its own investigation. I think it was also a spectacle from the point of view of the European Union regime. People already have been talking about in the literature of Moria being a spectacle of deterrence, a spectacle that the European Union deliberately wanted to project out to the world, especially to would-be border crossers, to people in countries like Afghanistan, the Middle East in general, or other countries in Africa, or countries in Africa that actually had contemplated crossing into the European Union through the Greek islands. So the message then, according to this argument, was that if you are to do so and come on the island of, of Lesbos, Moria, this Moria, this facility, the facility has been called hell, 
or Guantanamo or the worst camp in, in, in the world, the kind of phrases that you encounter in the media, awaits you. It's not the paradise. It's not the European Union of welcoming uh, people and of democracy. It's this militarized facility with the high walls, with the razor wire, and with the squalid conditions that very often were projected in the media. How can you know your 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 composite approach? How can archaeological ethnography or contemporary archaeology of of the camp of Moria? How can they help us understand the camp and and its context? Yeah, as I'm saying in the American anthropologist piece, there are many many scholars, many colleagues who have been to Lesbos who carry work on migration based on Lesbos. Um, social anthropologists, political scientists, human geographers artists and many others. And all of them, I'm sure, would contribute to, to the understanding of Moria as a phenomenon and of migration in, in general. I felt that an approach that foregrounds materiality, an approach that actually pays specific and close attention to the materiality of the phenomenon was missing from the previous attempts and from the previous disciplinary attempts at understanding um, the carbon, the sites. Archaeological ethnography and the archaeology of the present or contemporary archaeology are two strands that actually foreground materiality as central in our investigation, in our derogation of the phenomenon, in our attempt to understand. And materiality that takes different forms, takes different shapes. It is the materiality of the border regime with the various camps, as well as the other apparatuses that construct the assemblage of the border, but also it's the materiality of refugee or migrant experience. It's the kind of experiential attempts to construct shelter, to provide for food, to deal with the situation there while waiting, while waiting for the application to be processed, while waiting for them to be allowed to travel on into the mainland and to further on into central or west, um, the west of Europe. So both both ends, both the materiality of the border regime and the materiality produced by migrants, extremely important for us to understand. Let's remember that many of the other disciplinary efforts in understanding migration are grounded on discourses, are grounded on, on interviews, uh, are grounded on participant observation, of course, but increasingly on interviewing people, either officials or migrants or both. In my attempt in conducting archaeological ethnography and um, archaeology of the contemporary, while, of course, I spoke to people, both officials and migrants, more important for me was to, to center and focus and pay specific and detailed attention and record the materiality of the phenomenon, the materiality in its temporal dimensions as well, its transformation over time and its evocation of different times. People that I met on Lesbos uh, were very often tired of talking, tired of narrating the self, tired of appearing in front of officials, asylum officers and others, and telling the story, telling the story of their um, movement, uh, the story of their crossing, the story of their trauma, the story of their persecution, all these things that we know are linked to, to migration. 
Whereas if you were to say, okay, we are not doing that right now. We are actually trying to understand together how you materially experience this place, how you construct your shelter, how you provide for your food, how you actually engage in artistic and other practices while you're waiting here provides another another way of understanding the phenomenon. It's a the detailed and sustained attention to the materiality of the phenomenon in its transition, its change, and its kind of continuous transformation that makes, I think, this project of interest and hopefully of importance and significance as we understand the broader phenomenon. So if we keep um, keep our attention to the, that multiple and complex materiality, can you tell us more about the methodology that you deployed? So, for example, how do you decide what to collect and what what not to collect? And and you know, a question that's related to that, how do you say how can archaeological ethnography or contemporary archaeology open up a space for foregrounding the non-scholarly voices, especially of the people who lived in Moria, you know, the, the people on the move. Yeah, first of all, we may have to say something about um, ethnography and archaeology, because I think many of our you know, people, many of our listeners may have been aware of attempts by archaeologists to, to do ethnography. 
And I guess it's the tradition that has been dominant in the field of archaeology for many, many years is the tradition of ethno-archaeology. When archaeologists conduct interviews or conduct ethnography more generally to understand the past, to actually use the present in some ways as an analog in interpreting archaeological phenomena, whether it's material culture or practices or techniques. Now, I have said several times over in the past few years that I have fundamental problems with this method. And I, I'm, I'm not the only one having problems in that because I believe that in that methodology, and of course it has changed itself over the years. It started in the 1970s. Today, the ethnology is very different. But fundamentally, at the center of this approach is the idea of using present and future as proxies for the past. For me, that is fundamentally ethically wrong, and as well as having other methodological and interpretive problems in addition to the ethical issues that actually uh, brings forward. So archaeological ethnography is not ethnoarchaeology. I'm not there to, to record migration in order to understand prehistory or the archaeological past. I'm there to engage in a dialogue on the present and for the present and with the people who live today uh, and engage with this kind of phenomenon of migration. Archaeological ethnography produces a middle space, produces a space of multiple encounters, encounters between scholars and other people who live there as migrants, but also people of different backgrounds and different cultures. It is a transdisciplinary and transcultural attempt. It's not a methodology. Uh, it's more, as I said, the production of a shared space of encounters. So that's the broader definition. Within that, there are, of course, different methodologies broadly defined that one can, can, can use. There is no prescription. There is no uh, standard blueprint on how to do it. And more so in the very difficult context of the border of the migration. So for me, as for all anthropologically minded scholars, the first thought, of course, is the obligation to people we are interacting with, our interlocutors, our collaborators. And in, an issue, in, in a context, which is actually a context of very often of violence, of socialization, of militarization, research, as in extracting information or recording information, takes very often second place to the first and the most important feature, which is witnessing, being there, and witnessing the border in its multiplicity, in its kind of material expression, in its, in its complexity. Being there when the journalists have gone, being there when the celebrities and the luminaries have gone, being not only on the front of Moria, on the, the front stage, but also on the backstage, on the facets and the the places and the kind of the corners of this facility and this camp that are not really recorded, are not photographed, are not filmed by the by the different different camps. So observation, of course, uh, but at the same time, experience as a multisensorial modality, experiencing the place in its in its kind of multisensorial richness and vibrancy has been central. I conducted extensively photography, of course, but then again, you are 
always kind of reminded of the um, ethical issues that photography brings up. So photography has been kind of um, a way of coming to terms with that facility and witnessing the facility, bringing into the fore, for example, facets that are not normally discussed in relation to migration. For example, the agency of people, um, the actions of people that speak of their initiative, speak of their ability to transform the place, to make it a different place from the one that the authorities were actually working towards, showing people on the move as political agents and as autonomous individuals who actually are engaging in the process of remaking themselves is also important in the process of photography, but also, of course, keeping notes, as everybody does, and working with them in some cases when projects that have engaging with have been engaging with needs to be supported and need to be need to be kind of um, foregrounded for others also to see and support. I'll give you an example. I was working for many years in NGO that was actually put together by Afghani people themselves, a bottom-up mutual aid organization that clashed very often with the big established NGOs on the camp. And that organization was trying to create certain structures for making people's lives more livable in that condition, these conditions, for example, creating schools and asking the, the people who were there and who were teachers back in Afghanistan to assume their role as teachers and teach youth, but also constructing a small library and, and building a, an art studio for their painters who were there. These were projects that I felt they were worth supporting and helping, and I was helping to the best of my abilities to actually put together and produce successfully. So these are some of the kind of, I guess, activities I was engaging with. So this gives us a, a, how do you say, a, a broad area of, of, of examples of how archaeological ethnography and contemporary archaeology allowed uh, and enabled studying and experiencing uh, Moria. Could you say a bit more about how, how that kind of study, the contemporary archaeology, permits a, how do you say, a perspective that other modes of scholarly inquiry do not permit? Yeah, um, I think we may have to come back to the fundamental concept of materiality to the more fundamental concept that's to do with materiality, both in its um, physical dimensions, materials, techniques, and processes that transform a place. And when I say that, I mean that that, in, in the kind of work I do, is actually um, something that needs detailed attention. So to talk about the building, let's say, of the, the wall compound in its its general shape is not enough. To analyze how it, it shapes human movement, how it shapes human experience, how it transforms people's lives is what's needed. At the same time, to talk about the shelters that were built in the hills around in its generic shape is not enough. To talk about the specific materials that they were used, talk about how, for example, plastic bottles which is perhaps the ubiquitous and the most abundant object in the camp was because of the, the lack of running water, because of the lack of proper facilities to see, to record and observe and talk about the many different ways plastic water bottles were transformed into platforms, transformed into structures, transformed into kind of small objects that could be used, filled up with, uh, with ash, 
or with soil and use as, as weights for training. All these things recorded in detail and talked about and, and foregrounded are extremely important for the archaeological ethnography and the archaeology of contemporary migration. And through that, you can actually understand much better what life meant for people. To give that texture in those details is, is quite, quite fundamental. I want to say something else in relation to this, which for me is important. In addition to the epistemic value of this work, there is extremely important affective value. That's to do with the, the affectivity that objects and materials actually foreground. To bring out an object from that world and bring it to another world, let's say into a classroom or into a museum or to another surrounding environment, provides a direct material connection a direct way for people to understand and feel and engage a little bit with what life meant for people living there. So it's not just a matter of knowledge, it's just a matter of gaining conclusions about what migration meant or lesbos or what border crossing or camps meant, but it's also a way of creating affective bonds and affective connections between the people who were there or crossing at border crosses and other people in other contexts in, let's say, in Greece, in other parts, in Europe, or in the US. And I've done that quite a lot in recent years with some of the objects I brought back from Lesbos. We also held an exhibition at uh, Brown University called Transit Matter, uh, which is also online and people can, can go and see it. That actually made for many people, let's say, on our campus and more generally to actually understand materially what it meant to be there as a migrant, something which wasn't that easy when people were just reading either news reports or studies or essays done by, by other colleagues, other researchers. And I want to say one thing that you asked me now or in the previous question I didn't ask and didn't respond to, and that was about collection. What do we collect? This is a fundamental issue. This is an issue that has been uh, in my mind over the years and one that I'm ambivalent about. Uh, colleagues who work on migration in other parts of the world, including in the Mexico US border, have different views on what to do with the objects, what to do with, with artifacts. There are some colleagues who favor a total collection, to gather everything, to collect everything as, as if it was a normal conventional archaeological site, and then take it away and store it in the lab and analyze it and then you know, donate it to museums or do something with it. Other colleagues are in favor of um, minimal and selective collection. They say, for example, that when border crosses, cross the border, for example, in the Sonora Desert, they leave things on the ground that become part of a specific landscape. And for certain people, especially people on the border who are uh, solidarity workers and others or local people who are positively predisposed towards border uh, crosses, want to curate that landscape, want to keep it as an active, rich landscape that speaks of the phenomenon of migration. Now, in my own work, even if I wanted to do extensive collection, that would have been impossible because the masses and masses and masses of material that is left on the ground would make it beyond possible to actually um, 
gather everything and store it and catalog it and process it as archaeological site. But I don't want to do that either. I do believe that only selective collection is the most appropriate ethical and epistemic um, solution to this dilemma. And of course, always with the understanding that I am not the owner of these things. I'm not somebody who would actually acquire these things and then access accession them into, into museum collections or into other institutions. I'm the temporary steward of these small things I've collected. They belong to people who created them. They belong to people who left them on the ground. And I always say that if people come back to me and claim even the small collection I have actually gathered, I will be the first one to actually send them back to them. But I believe that there is a value, both epistemic, ethical, and affective value, as I said, in collecting selectively only a small number of objects and re-energize them, reactivate them, in other contexts, be it a museum context or a school class context or another environment where people are interested to hear about migration. Thank you. And you know, that, that selective approach to collection brings us to the question of you know, what, what we might be able to glean about borders more globally coming out of the particular approach that you followed in Moria, out of the specific relationship, it seems, between, you know, maybe it's a repre representative relation between the thing that you bring with you, that you're custodian of, as you said, and what remains behind. So what do you think we might be able to glean about borders more globally uh, if we think about those other places, whether these, you know, border spaces like the US-Mexico one, or regarding the agency of, of people on the move who inhabit camps and borders the world over, what might be able to glean about them if we take what, you, what you've developed coming out of that specific approach that, as you say, depends on the particular setting and the particular materiality of Moria, right? The, the fact that you basically, as you say in the piece, you, 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 you conducted an ethnographic archaeology of a living, if arrested, city. Collecting everything in, in a living space like that is, as you say, is impossible, but that forces you to create affective and epistemic stances. And what can we learn from these? Yeah, I believe that there's a lot to be learned from studying a context like Moria and the border um, as a whole, the border of you know, Lesbos as an island, the border between Greece and Turkey. As I said, it's not just a national border, it's a kind of a, a global border. And something that we need to be reminded is that on the island of Lesbos, you encounter, I have encountered people from many different parts of the world. Very often we think, people who haven't been there think that only uh, border crosses from Syria or Afghanistan are to be found on Lesbos because these are the ones who actually attempt to cross in the European Union. That's actually wrong. There are people from dozens and dozens of countries of Asia and of Africa that attempt to cross through Lesbos and through the Greek islands. And that's because uh, many people, especially many people from Africa, um, travel from their country to Istanbul, which has become a kind of a global center in the movement of people around the world, and then traveled you know, down the kind of Anatolian coast and then cross into the Greek islands. So I've met people from East Africa, I've met people from West Africa or Central Africa, and many, many countries from Asia. And some people have told me, although I haven't met, that even people from Mesoamerica or Latin America sometimes attempt to 
instead of doing the US-Mexico route, attempt to cross into the European Union through the Greek islands. So we're talking about the global border. So what can we learn from it about the world? First of all, as I said, the immediate kind of understanding of what's happening in the world right now in terms of global movements. But we can also learn about um, the different ways that the border facets and different kind of shapes that the border takes. First, the border as assemblage, the border as a configuration of different modalities that cohere and co-function to produce the border effect. We have to understand that there are many, very different entities that cohere to produce and reproduce the border. The authorities, the European Union, national states, police, the army are some of them, but there are many, many others that we haven't associated with the border effect, but they are in fact are crucial in, in facilitating the function of the border effect. For example, NGOs. NGOs very often facilitate the whole border effect. And I saw in Moria what scholars have already spoken about, the, the meshing and the kind of the, the merging of humanitarianism with militarization, how the two in fact can function together. I saw young people from the US working inside the, the camp of Moria and guarding different sectors of the camp and asking people to produce papers to enter from one sector to the next. So that's a function that normally we associate with guards or with you know, police uh, or the military. Here we have humanitarian workers doing that. So you could see how the two can actually cohere and function together. So first, the border as assemblage. The second is the border as method, something that um, scholars like Mesandra and Nielsen have written about in their famous book. And by that I mean is that the border mobilizes whole series of other processes. For example, the generation and the circulation of capital in terms of the amount of money that goes into the operation of the border. And of course, a whole series of other processes with production of labor that has been submitted these processes of bodily regulation and bodily submission, but also the process of waiting. Let's think about the waiting as method, as an ontology that produces specific subjects, a specific individual. For example, it devalues their labor, their time and thus their labor. So even if they're allowed to work after they've been waiting for years at the border, their time has been already devalued that process of waiting in these conditions. So border assemblage, border as method. The third is border as a mechanism of typologizing people and of racialization. The categorization of people, the people who come there primarily to be, as I said, processed, categorized, um, not only fingerprinted, but also having all the biometrics extracted. And at the same time, um, you see that process of racialization, which I described earlier, when some people are deemed as already people who are going to be rejected, and that some of them are actually put into prison without having committed any crime, just because some authorities believe that they are not going to get asylum status, and also they are deemed by the authorities as prone to criminality. So racialization is something that I see being produced and produced at the border, and especially at Moria. But finally, my fourth point is more positive, and that's the view of the border as a ground of hope. 
let's recall that not only the, the agency they talked about, not only the work that went into transforming a place like Moria by migrants, but also of the alliances that have been created at the border, of the various connections that have been made, having people from all over the world meeting at a place like Moria, at the border, exchanging information, exchanging information about movements too, about how to continue the journey and making connections about also further kind of attempts to reproduce themselves and continue kind of living and continue kind of transforming their existence is something that I think is extremely important. At the same time, I see, I have seen how a town like Mytilini, the biggest town on the island of Lesbos, nine kilometers away from Moria, has been shaped and reshaped by migration. I've seen how the town itself has become a, a space of market encounters, encounters of people from many different parts of the world. I've seen how the, uh, the town has become a space where you can find restaurants operated by migrants with cuisine that you can't find in many other parts of, of the country and Europe. I've seen how musical, how music has been produced in Moria, and in Mytilene, I've seen how art has been produced by people from many different parts. So you can see the border not only as a space of militarization, as method for the production of subjugated individuals, but also as a ground of hope. To close, and in the spirit of intervention and, and interaction, can, can you leave our listeners with some insights on how you think this work on materiality of the border can, perhaps at the intersection of research and activism, intervene in public debates on migration and on the border? Yeah, um, I think this, um, this specific work, as I said, and I may have to repeat myself now, but I think it's important to emphasize, this specific work puts you know, the object and its specificity, physicality, affective power, sensorial impact at the center of our conversation, at the center of our kind of thinking about migration, about the border. It actually uh, allows specific objects and artifacts to become mediators between people from different contexts, between people who, who may have heard of migrants as the, these people who may be, you know, dangerous. We often hear in xenophobic discourses and in the media about, you know, how migrants threaten uh, the way of life, how migrants kind of uh, may destabilize countries, all these things, all the negative stereotypes that are often being projected in the media can in fact be dispelled or at least undermined by a work that shows in specific material the uh, ability of people to not only transform themselves, but also transform the world as they transform themselves and as they, as they transform the border. And the best way to do that is by showing specific examples of that transformation. And one way of doing that is to actually bring forward material objects, bring forward artifacts that have been made by them, but also showing in specific material terms, again, how the policies of entities like the European Union or entities like the US government, for example, since we are here in this context, shape the life of those people in very problematic and difficult ways and often in militarized uh, and securitized kind of ways. How facilities, for example, shape bodily um, subjects in a specific way, how 
the, the building in which they live while they're waiting for their asylum, all the processes of um, distributing food and the process of waiting and all these kind of bodily processes that we see uh, every day in the camps can actually um, shape individuals in a specific way. So both the top-down attempts by authorities to regulate um, migrant movement and migrant life and the bottom-up attempts by border crosses and people on the move to reshape that life, to reshape even camps through materiality, through specific agency, through taking initiative, through taking taking the, the, the kind of their lives in their own hands can actually show that potential and that agency in specific ways. And I saw that in Moria in, in, in very concrete terms, especially in the last years before the fire, when the number of people had actually exploded and it was clear that the authorities could not deal with that number any longer, could not really provide food, shelter, or basic things. I saw how silently, but very energetically and very powerfully, people took over, people reshaped the camp. They start taking initiatives, having even you know, shops set up inside the camp, or as I said, um, schools and other facilities to actually continue their life. When that organic development happened, you could feel hopeful about the whole phenomenon, but also record that and bring examples from that, material examples, photographic uh, objects and others to people in other contexts, to people in other parts of the world that have no direct experience of that phenomenon and show how in those camps is in reality and how, in fact, a more um, an understanding and a more kind of um, and different different attitude that foregrounds solidarity and an attempt to come to terms with the experiential and affective nature of migration can be a much more much more appropriate way of, of understanding the phenomenon. Dr. Hamilakis, thank you very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Anthropological Airwaves. Many thanks to Dr. Hamalakis and Dr. Ben Yehoyada for this generative and insightful discussion about Moria and its significance to scholarly conversations about materiality, migration, and borders. This episode also features the track Vertigo, Feet, Sponti by Krav Boca, as well as field recordings collected by Dr. Hamalakis. You can find the full What Was Moria and What Comes Next collection open access on the American Anthropologist website. As always, a closed caption version of this and all Anthropological Airwaves episodes will be available on our YouTube channel and a full transcription on the episode page on the American Anthropologist website. Links to both are included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Anthropological Airwaves wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to rate and review us while you're there. A five-star review in particular can help other listeners find the show. We would also love to hear from you in general. If you have feedback, recommendations, or thoughts on recent episodes, send us an email to amandpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on the American Anthropologist Facebook page or on Twitter with the handle at amanthjournal. Find links to all of our contact information in the show notes and on the Anthropological Airwaves section of the American Anthropologist website. Take it easy. We'll be back soon with more great anthro audio.